genetics, we've got the ability to manipulate the genome through the tools that we're developing with these CRISPR tools. We've also got the computer power and and um, artificial intelligence that we can drive to really understand the genomes and the things that we want to do. So, you know, the opportunity is huge. Welcome to Croptastic, the Interplant Podcast, where your host, Shelly Aronov, explores the global future of agriculture and food. In this episode, we're joined by Tom Adams, CEO and co-founder of Pairwise. Tom has over 25 years of biotechnology leadership experience, including a stint with Monsanto, and chats with Shelly about how that experience continues to influence his work using biotech to create healthier food at Pairwise. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Croptastic, the podcast by Innerplant. Today's guest is Tom Adams, who's the founder and CEO of Pairwise. Tom, great to have you here today. Hi, Shelley. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. So, uh, Tom, we always start the same way. So please kind of walk us through your career, uh, which you obviously had a really interesting career at Monsanto, and then you started Pairwise, and would love to hear the story, your story. Sure. Yeah, I started off in technology and sort of went down an academic path. So after I went to uh, graduate school in plant sciences at Michigan State, I did a postdoc in the same space. So I was going down the academic route and actually was a faculty member at Texas A&M. I had you know, sort of gotten to a stage in my career where I was looking around at different things for, for a reason. And a, a company in Boston called Millennium Pharmaceuticals, which has now been since been purchased by Takeda. So this was the, the late 90s um, when genomics was really you know, sequencing the human genome and so forth was becoming a big deal. And this was a healthcare company. They invited me out to do a sabbatical. They had this idea of creating a plant science uh, entity that would um, bring the technology that was being developed for genomics and healthcare into agriculture. So they called it Millennium Agriculture. And they were pitching this this opportunity to to the various ag companies. And Monsanto ended up winning the the bid for the deal um, and created a company in... Boston and Cambridge that was called Sirion Genomics, sort of a sort of like a joint venture, but fully owned by Monsanto. Somewhere along the line in that, I was helping them get it set up. And there was a suggestion that if I was going to be so involved in this, I probably ought to think about giving up my day job at Texas A&M and staying. So I like to say I ended up having a 20-year sabbatical at Monsanto, where I ended up basically founding Sirion uh, along with a few other people. And then um, as that developed, started to get other opportunities in Monsanto. Eventually, the, the last role I had there was the global biotech vice president, so developing all the insect and herbicide and other traits that uh, Monsanto is very well known for, um, and running the technology behind that, and then working with the, the rest of the technology. So it was, a, it was an exciting time, got to do a lot of lot of things. It was, you know, it was interesting and exciting work, but it was always a little bit frustrating that we're spending all this effort on on crops that are really for feed, for starch production and protein production, and not not so much for an oil production, not so much for feeding people directly, but for feeding animals. Of course, CRISPR made it much easier to design things and make things happen. We started looking at opportunities to bring it into the the core of the Monsanto business, but I also saw personally that this was maybe a time to to look at a technology that could be democratized a little bit more broadly, could be used across lots of crops, and we started to form the concept of of a company, a new company that we'd start, which ended up being Pairwise, where Monsanto was actually one of the original investors in it. And we've had a really good relationship with Monsanto as well with Pairwise, where we're 
working on the the big acre crops with them and developing the technology further. But we're also um, using the technology to work in in other crops like leafy greens and berries and and trees and things things of that nature. So um, been a really exciting time. So let's um, maybe we can start actually from the end of Pairwise. Meaning, um, what is your vision for the company? What do you want? Let's say ten years from now, what do you want the company to be? Yeah, you know, when you you look about starting a company, and I know you've been through this, Shelley. You think about what what's the problem you want to solve. It's not really just you know the problem isn't how do I use technology. The problem is what what's the right. what is the real problem I want to solve. And we were looking at the overall diets of people and recognize that people don't eat enough fruits and vegetables. <laughs> this has been a fact forever. I think in, in the Western culture, typically it's about one in 10 people eat what's recommended in a fruits and vegetable. And we eat a lot of other stuff, a lot of processed foods and a lot of, of uh, protein and grains, but we don't eat the fruits and vegetables recommended. So we started kind of thinking about why that is. And, um, you know, it's not that we don't know that we should eat it, but it doesn't fit. They don't fit that well into people's lives. They aren't that convenient. We're marketing convenience all the time with you know candy bars and processed protein bars and these things. So um, we started thinking about the opportunities to create more convenient produce or produce that fit people. You know, took away barriers that had for people eating, and that that became really the mission of the company is to create a healthier world through um, better fruits and vegetables, and where we've been putting our focus. So. Maybe just to give an example, I think one of the really early ideas we had that we're working on, but it's going to take a little bit longer, but it kind of kind of became a, a, a metaphor for the other things that we're doing is my, my partner, Haven Baker, and I were driving in the car and he was talking about the problem that cherries are really only about available during the early part of the, the summer. They're not, not available year round and people, we eat a lot of cherries during that period, but we'd eat a lot more if we had them all, all year and had good cherries all year. And, you know, if we could just, there could be businesses that we could just expand that season a bit. And I said, well, you know, if we're really going to do something with cherries, why wouldn't we get rid of the pits? And then we started, you know, started into the possibility of that. And it turns out genes for removing pits are, are understood what goes on in a seedless grape, for instance. So we started down the concept of why don't we create a cherry tree? It's not a tree anymore. Let's make it into a bush. And let's remove the pits. So if it's a bush, then you can expand its production zones. You could put it under uh, plastic hoop houses like they do with blueberries and grow it in a lot more regions, um, regions where there's more water available because it rains during the summer. So deal with some of the climate change issues and and have a, you know, a cherry without a pit. So we're making, we're making those. And our, our thought is we could make all the stone fruits available like that. We can, we're working a little bit shorter term on the, the cane berries and getting rid of the thorns so they're easier for pickers, but also removing the seeds. It turns out in blackberries, those large seeds that they have kind of bother people. So we're trying to get rid of the seeds. And then the product that we're actually launching next year is a new type of leafy green. It doesn't quite fit the convenience as much as it fits a convenient way to get more nutritional um, uh, vegetables. Is a lot of the, the salads that people eat tend to be not that nutritious from a leafy green perspective. The romaines and icebergs are nice and crunchy, but they're good carriers for dressing, but they don't add a lot of nutritional value. Um, we talk about eating kale, but people don't eat a lot of kale because it's kind of woody, um, but the, and other reasons. And we I recognize that there were relatives of kale in the brassica family that have beautiful leaves like lettuce, really could uh, have a nice mouthfeel, a nice crunch, but they um, they don't taste good. They, they um, Tastes like mustard and the mustard greens. 
So we recognize that there is an opportunity to remove that mustard flavor and make it so they'd be good as a fresh vegetable. Obviously, you could cook them and they're good. And a lot of people eat cooked mustard greens, but we've made mustard greens now that tastes much more like lettuce. They actually have a little bit more flavor than a lettuce, I think. So it actually adds to the, the value of a salad um, in that way. We're testing those with consumers right now. And the plan is to have those on the market next year as, as uh, salad blends. When you think through, I mean, clearly there's a lot of different opportunities you can pursue. What is your process of validating the commercial viability of a product and the willingness to pay through yeah. some channel partners or maybe even all the way to the consumers? Yeah, early on as we were starting to develop this this sort of convenience path, we started with the sort of analogs of other places where people have made a lot of progress in both in getting consumers to eat more fruits and vegetables and also people shown a willingness to pay for it. So, you know, for instance, it's a processing trait, but the baby carrots that everybody eats in the United States anyway, you, you know, these little people put whole carrots in rock, put whole carrots in rock grinders and... Um, and you, I think we've quadrupled the the consumption of carrots, and there's a, a significant premium on those over over regular raw carrots. That's a an easy example. A more recent example would be the Easy Peel seedless mandarins, where um, those have only not been around that long. It's only since the early 2010s that um, they became year round available. These Easy Peel mandarins that don't have any seeds, and the citrus industry was actually shrinking. Those have now become the dominant citrus available and there there is a premium price on it now there's starting to be a lot more generic versions of those and that, that'll start wearing away at the price but they they do get a, a nice premium for those think uh, another type of example i mentioned you know trying to make cherries year round well, blueberries were bred for years probably 50 60 years of breeding it took and in the early part of the 2000s they said they had enough varieties of blueberries that we could have blueberries in the store every day of the year and um, that making them available all the time has made it so I think there's been about a quadrupling of blueberry consumption in the United States, and they tend to be at a little bit of a premium price as well. So I think there's a lot of these types of analogs where if you can make um, make things that people like available, they're, uh, they're very, very good businesses. Right. But out of curiosity, what's your process of evaluating? Because I'm assuming when you choose something and, and I'm going to guess it takes a few years to develop, but would be interested yeah. in what the actual timeline is. You want to make sure from day one that you have a good grasp of what it is. Um, yeah. So Sorry, I, I meant to answer that and I got carried away with the examples. <laughs> but yeah, the, in a way, those, those analogs are one of those. So we look for analogs that have similarity. We look for areas when we, produce is a nice area to work with again because it's regional rather than global, and that means you you only need to worry about the regional regulations rather than than global. So the fact that most produce is is eaten within the region and not shipped to other countries, um, you know, allows us to manage that. Looking for areas that are growing rather than than shrinking. So you know, cane berries. I mentioned an area that we're in. It's an it, it is an area that that's grow has a, a nice a nice growth rate and people are eating more and more cane berries and cherries are similarly so we look for these areas that have growth in the salad example um, we're currently we're looking for something that was a little bit faster that we're working with these faster reproducing leafy greens and I'd say we've grown to understand that opportunity was bigger than we thought when we got into it because. We got into it again because we thought it was a good good way to demonstrate. But as we've understood the salad space and got consumer feedback, which is part of our process, 
we've understood that there's actually a pretty significant number of salad buyers who are a bit bored with the opportunities, especially in the nutritious salad space, which is why they end up going to the, the romains, et cetera. So, you know, when you start talking to them about the, the types of opportunities we're creating with these new um, new salads that we're calling, we're going to sell them under our own brand, Conscious Foods, or we'll call them Conscious Greens. And we start talking to them about Conscious Greens, we get a lot of positive response on it. And like I said, we've been doing some consumer activation events and quite good responses. Yeah, actually, that's uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about is, so are you planning for most of these products to take them all the way to the consumers with a branded product where I'm assuming you have to take care of distribution and placement in supermarkets and stuff like that? Or do you want to sell through existing channels like I would assume Driscoll's for anything berries or, or is it a hybrid? Our, our core business model is to be different, create differentiated products through genetics and then through marketing, sell them through our own brand. So that's our, our core model. Um, so the traits, the crops and traits where we think we can really identify a consumer advantage, like the ones that I've been describing, those are things that we're going to sell under our own brand and we'll, you know, our intention is we'll compete with the existing brands in those spaces. There are other places and, and traits that we're adding that would have more agronomic value and more, more things that we're creating for people in the in the value chain. Those are things that we'd be more likely to license and be able to sell through other people's brands as well. And then, you know, more broadly, I mentioned the bear relationship we have. We've built a platform that can work across many different crops. And we're talking to, to people in a lot of different fields about how we could um you know, make make changes within the the cropping systems to help them be more productive as well. So, but the core of our the core of our commercial business is to be our own brand. And part of the the thing behind that is produce is not the space where people have put a lot behind marketing produce, which you know we, we think is one of the reasons that produce doesn't compete that well with the snack aisle because we're not really helping people see the opportunities and and sell those. Now, cases like the the halos and cuties, the the easy peel mandarins, marketing has gone behind those and it's really helped to drive consumption. Yeah, the wonderful company is really good at yeah, marketing, right? That's the absolutely, absolutely um, has, has demonstrated that marketing and produce can work. When we think about the technology, and uh, I'm sure you're gonna like this question, but what are you're talking about some of the opportunities you're already going after? What are some of the most exciting kind of out of the box, maybe moonshots that you don't even know if you can make happen, opportunities that you see in the long-term future? Well, I'm gonna take your question as really around what we can do with genetics. I think there's yeah. lots of exciting things around technology and agriculture that are that are going maybe on. Specifically to this yeah. domain. But yeah. <laughs> And it's an exciting time to be in agriculture. I think you can say that almost any time, but it is an exciting time because so many different things are coming together. And, you know, in genetics, we've got got the ability to manipulate the genome through the tools that we're developing with these CRISPR tools. We've also got the computer power and and, um, artificial intelligence that we can drive to really understand the genomes and the things that we want to do. So, you know, the opportunity is... And then the kind of data that we're getting from sensor technology and things like your company are doing, I think also create uh, a more understanding of what's really going on out in the field. So the opportunities are huge. I think I already started to mention one of the things and you know, our vision is you're gonna be able to go in the produce aisle and get you know anything today that's a stone fruit, we're gonna have it in you know, maybe uh, maybe a bit bigger than a cherry, but hitless 
and available as a, a snackable item that you can you know just pick up and take like you would a candy bar and you know really change the way those are produced because rather than being trees we can move them uh, turn them into bushes put them under you know these plastic hoop houses like we grow other things under so we can change the whole the whole agricultural production system and if you you know you look at the challenges that we're going to have as climate change continues and these these different uh, different challenges today. Almost all the all the stone fruit in the U.S. is produced in in Washington State, or certainly cherries. A couple of other states, but ninety uh, percent of the cherries are coming out of Washington State. If you have a, a major weather event in Washington State, you're not going to have any cherries. So, you know, that's by by taking by changing the the architecture and making it so they could be grown in other areas. We could um, you know really really create a lot more security in the food system. Yeah. And as someone who knows uh, how long it takes to create a plant from scratch, uh, a tree is definitely daunting, right? So anything you can make smaller, you can make faster. The, the, first, the first time, um, what, one of the things we're doing, we can change some of the flowering and the maturation rules. So we've actually taken a, a blackberry now and we can create a new, we can plant a blackberry seed and have it be making new new blackberries within three months of when we planted the seed. And normally it would be two years. So you can start shortening these timelines as well. That's that's great. That's huge. We always look for ways to grow plants faster. Yeah. <laughs> I guess a biologist joke, even though I'm not a biologist. And another thing that I was wondering about as you're talking, what about shelf life? Because I feel like shelf life is probably a big deterrent for, for a lot of people on convenience. Yeah, shelf life is one of the things that people always ask about. I'm skeptical about exactly how shelf life would fit into the system, but clearly there's a lot of value to be created if you can make something that would have uh, would have gone bad in two weeks, last three weeks. That's going to give, whether whether that extra three weeks allows it to be shipped farther or treated differently in the supply chain or whether the, you know, one of the jokes when we talk about it as well, the people will just leave it in their refrigerator one more week before they throw it away if you give them an extra week of shelf life. So I think yeah, there is a question about, about exactly how people would take advantage of it, but I think it's, it clearly is an opportunity and it is something that we're, we, we think there are some um, genetic tricks that can help with it. I also think there's, you know, some wonderful, technologies that are being developed with treatments of fruit and things that also helps them last longer. So I think the combination of genetics and and those types of things, um, it's certainly something that can be improved. Let's talk a little bit about, I mean, you obviously spent a really successful career in one of the most influential companies in ag. And um, I'd be curious to hear from from your experience in Monsanto and then going into not row crops, but going into high value crops, which you, you touched on, but how does that time influence your opinion on the industry, the things that you do like, the things that you wanted to bring with you for your new venture, the things that you didn't want to bring with you? Yeah, so so many ways, but I'll I'll take one one angle on answering that question. I think, you know, one of the the things that I I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and you know, there was a lot of hunger in the world, and this idea of feeding the world was a, was something that resonated with me and probably a lot of people in my generation. And when you know, working for somebody like Monsanto, and we had this this idea that you know, make, be, making more productivity, even if it was not necessarily what we were eating ourselves, was something that was really helping to feed the world, was was inspiring. And and I think most people working in Monsanto felt that inspiration. But you know, Monsanto also had a a not a great label <laughs> that people that consumers didn't feel good about it and didn't feel great about the products and 
you know, some of the investigation that was going on to really understand, you know, what were we doing wrong from a marketing perspective sort of surprised me, which was um, talking to, to people, you know, in general, they said, you know, I kind of get this feeding the world thing, but I'm really much more worried about feeding my children and I want them to be able to eat things that are safe and healthy and, and good. And that was that was an aha for me that, um, that that really resonated into setting up Carewise. We really are looking for ways to take away challenges that, you know, moms and dads have in feeding their kids and um, taking down these kind of barriers that keep people from eating healthy food. So I think that kind of emotional connection to technology is, uh, you know, the value of the technology through an emotional connection. Products that Monsanto made were loved by by producers, uh, by farmers Absolutely. and growers, and, and and still are, and made a huge difference for them. But they ignored they ignored the downstream part, and you know that that has been a a drag on the business. So, you know, we're starting with products that. Far as I'm aware, where we're the company that is in technology that is the most focused on the consumer, and we're starting with that idea in mind that the the way to that consumers don't buy technology, they buy products, and you need to make products they love. And if you make products they love, they'll love the technology. Is um, I mean, we've had several people from Impossible Foods on the podcast. Um, is is that kind of how you view it? That perspective of building a brand based yeah, on technology that's better for people. And I think they've built a, a wonderful story where, you know, whether whatever side you come down on, on animal ag or, and all of that, they, they're, they're trying to solve a problem and they're really directing and solving that, that problem. And I think they've done a great job of driving a focus on that and, and uh, are, are making an impact. I'm, I'm wondering, I have one more question, especially lately. There's a lot of technologies that people want to exist uh, when it comes to, I'm talking more broad rate, like, large acres of crops, um, the soy and the corn and so on, wheat and rice. And those technologies sometimes are uh, better for the world, but not necessarily as valuable for the farmer or the consumer. Do you have any thoughts I, kind of how, how people are going to bridge the divide between what's better for the world, what's better for the farmers, what's better for the consumers, and how do we make everyone care? You know, first, I think one of the things that that has really changed in agriculture over the last just the last few years, and and certainly in food, is there's much more focus on the consumer. So I think in general, you know, we've had built incredibly productive agricultural systems that are really efficient and creating a lot of a lot of food, but we, you have you know multiple masters to serve. There's the grower that needs more productive crops. We have the Shelf life and shipability um, that by the the packer shippers need and and retailers need and then you have the consumer and frequently you know if you go back twenty years I think the consumer wasn't the the major customer of a lot of the types of improvements and I think we've seen a lot more focus on the consumer I think tools like what we're doing with gene editing allow you to have it both ways because we can take crops that have been developed really well for the the producer and the shipper. And just make some minor changes to them using directed gene editing, things that you could have done with breeding, but it would take forever um, to move in the genes in other varieties that give better flavor, for instance, into it, or better ship a more shipability gene into a good flavored thing so that you can make you don't have to give up as much. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And then, you know, just broadly in agriculture, whether it's it's fruits and vegetables or the big the big acre crops, I think 
there's a lot of change going on. So how how much of our food is going to become you know, plant-based meats instead of uh, animals, animal protein? Lots of different opportunities there. They're going to you know reshape the way that the the food system is working and and change the demands on the system. So if if suddenly half of the meat we're eating is not meat but proteins from plants, I think you've reduced the the footprint that agriculture that plants have to have in order to feed people directly. It could change change a lot the types of qualities that you could put into the things you're growing. The productivity might not be as big a driver as the quality as we get more focused on the human consumer. Um, I think there's Lots, lots to watch in the next 20 years. So before we wrap up, what is your advice to, let's say, aspiring founders in the ag space? What are, what are some of your big learnings? You know, from my perspective, and I guess I'm still early in the journey with Pairwise, but the, um, you've got to have a reason to be. So having having a real problem that you're trying to solve and that, that does... A, not an aspirin. What was it? No, not a vitamin. A painkiller, not a vitamin. And some, some, you know, things that are um, people really that you can get people behind because I think you need to motivate, you need to hire a staff and motivate a staff on a on a mission that people are excited about. And it makes a huge difference to to have people really want to work in an organization. And if you have a you know a good reason to be, you're gonna people want to invest as well. I think you know the other other big challenge in these new technology areas is is focus. That um, you know, it's easy for us to sit around and come up with, well, why don't we work on this? And why don't we do that? And before you know it, you're not really working on any, anything because you keep switching. Like then, you know, finally, product development is hard. So, um, you know, be ready. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's not for the faint of heart as you're, as you're developing things. Things are going to go wrong and it's going to look a lot easier to switch from what you're doing right now to switch over to that other thing because you don't know what's going to be hard about it. So it's easy to jump yeah. And I think that, you know, you really need to, to make good decisions about um, when to keep going and how to keep going and how do you adjust and pivot and make sure that that uh, that you keep a focus on that end game. Um, I think that's where I see a lot of a lot of teams go wrong. And then, you know, in agriculture, I think the you know, you see I've seen a lot of companies in this biotech space that I think go public a little earlier than they're really ready. And then they aren't really ready to defend their their portfolio on the in on the public market. Yep. Um, so I think um, I think it's important to really make sure you've established the business before you uh, you you go out. But um, you know, I know that's there's often pressures other than than logic that drive people there too. Oh, I agree, and it is it's so true what you said that uh, I often found that find that every opportunity is really exciting. Then you dive in, then it looks terrible, and then eventually, sometimes you find the middle ground, right? Um, yeah. But you have to get we through. Never, the we never start anything new if we knew how hard it was going to be. Right? Yeah, just, no, I know. Yeah. That's why every time I look at a new space, and I'm like, mm, I don't know. At least I know everything's scary here, and I made peace with it. You know. Um, <laughs> But also what you said about the mission is is really important. Having a mission-driven business really helps with inspiring a team and keeping a team happy longer term, I think. And ag really creates a lot of those opportunities, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be hard. And if you don't have something that you're excited about trying to solve, it's those those days, those hard days are even harder. Right. Well, Todd, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining us today. And um, excited to see everything that comes up from Pairwise. Thanks, Shelly. Thanks for inviting me. 
And that'll do it for this episode of Croptastic. Thank you again to Tom Adams from Pairwise for joining us today. As always, please remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. And please share any feedback you have with us via LinkedIn or on our Twitter account at inner underscore plant. Thanks for listening. <laughs>